You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. A couple of reminders before we get started with this week's episode featuring another Green Beret. Excited for you guys to hear this one as well. Want to remind you guys to please leave us a rating and a review uh, on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes. Uh, we have such a large community. In fact, I was going over the numbers for the podcast with our producer, Matt. We are so happy that this thing has grown into such a large audience. But for whatever reason, the algorithm that Apple uses to sort of promote the podcast is based off of ratings and reviews. So if you get a chance, please leave us a rating or a review. And in fact, not only do it on Apple, but do it anywhere you get your podcast. Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Leave us a rating and a review so this way more and more people can continue to hear the stories of these great Americans who have sacrificed so much for us. So again, rating and a review. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show and everything that we have going on. As well, it's a great place for you guys to give us some feedback on what you like and what you don't like. And then finally, a reminder about our promotion with Amazon. As we told you last week, we made another donation. How it works, you go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll take you right to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. And oh, by the way, same thing works on your cell phone slash smartphone. If you go to hazardground.com and you click on the Amazon button, it'll take you right to the Amazon app on your smartphone or on your tablet. So easy and convenient for you there as well. But do all your normal shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we donate it right back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So you guys keep up the great work. We love hearing from you guys. We certainly love the fact that you're part of this community. And now let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is a Sergeant Major currently serving with 10 Special Forces Group at Fort Carson, Colorado. He's got over 27 years of experience in the military. He has been on over seven different deployments across the globe, including Iraq and Africa. He is Sergeant Major Gary Garza joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Sergeant Major, Gary, welcome. Good to talk to you. Well, appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. All right. Uh, We were just talking before we started recording that you and I uh, almost crossed paths uh, in Iraq in 05 and 06. So it is a very, very uh, small army, as they say. But I'm excited to hear about, you know, your journey and how you got there. So start at the beginning for me. How and why did you get in the army? Uh, you know, so back before 9-11, you know, most people joined um, with for college. They, mm-hmm. they joined it for college money. You know, I went to college and, um, you know, focused more on having a good time than I was my studies. So you know, lost a scholarship and, um, lost my seat. And they're like, well, Hey, if you join the military, you can come back. Um, you can come back to school. So I was like, okay, well I'll do that. So I joined the military, um, to get the college money and to get back into, back into college and finish my degree. And here I am 27 years later, I never left. So <laughs> what appealed to you about, about the ROTC thing? I'm curious. Cause mo- most people enlist and then go to officer, so why did you start down that road? Was it just for college? You know, honestly, when I, I just didn't have a plan, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when I got out of high school, um, I, I caught a ride with my buddy to, to college for orientation. And, uh, when we were there, they were like, Hey, you know, have you applied for housing? You should have applied for housing six months ago. And I'm like, I haven't done that. I'm like, well, if you applied for this, you should have had funding. I haven't done any of that. So I didn't have anywhere to live, um, <laughs> on campus 
Well, you know, the ROTC, and this was Texas A&M, so they have the Corps of Cadets, which is a huge ROTC program. Right, yeah. He was standing there, and he's like, hey, you're guaranteed housing if you join the Corps. And I was like, done. I'll do that. So uh, I just kind of fell into it, and, you know, I was good at it, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the, the you know, the, the camaraderie. I enjoyed the discipline, and, you know, it was difficult, but uh, I really liked it, and I was doing well um, other than <laughs> academically. So, uh, but that was a really good lesson for me because it paid off. It paid off down the road. All right. So you end up enlisting, uh, going infantry, right? Uh, how does, uh, the next step to get to special forces come about? So for me, um, you know, I was in the 101st and I just kept looking for those challenges. You know, I was looking for something, I needed something more. Um, I went to, you know, that, you know, all the basic schools, aerosol school there with the 101st and I was on a graduate. I went to ranger school and I came out, you know, I graduated straight through. Uh, I went to sniper school, came out top, uh, on a graduate from there as well. So I was just, I needed more of a challenge and fifth group was right there on, uh, mm-hmm. on the base on the post. So we were dealing with them a lot and I was like, you know, I, I think I want to try this. So, um, it was 99, 2000. I went to selection and uh, got picked up, and I was like, okay, this is the next step. You know, it's interesting, because I was on active duty at the same time, and, and I always had remarked, and I, you know, I say I had the fortunate pleasure of, of you know, deploying with the SF and sort of seeing that world from the outside looking in. I didn't know about it when I was on active duty. Like, it wasn't something that was advertised the way it is now. It's not sort of, for lack of a better term, glorified the way it is now. Did you just stumble upon it because you were looking for challenges, or was SF something that was like readily, you know, made available to guys at, at, at your position at that point in time? Well, it's a little bit of both. So, you know, I was running a sniper section there for the 101st. So we were we were coming across Fifth Group a lot on the same ranges. Uh, they were doing their sniper SOTIC type training, and then you know, I I was I was too. So I was getting to know them. And then, you know, the infantry is, you know, at least especially back then, is primarily where they were recruiting from. Mm-hmm. Um, now we, we, you know, we're, we're now it's much, di- much more diverse. But, um, you know, so we, we would constantly get some recruiters coming down to the infantry and it wasn't very far for them. You know, we were just down the road. So uh, it seemed like, a, you know, a good challenge and I wanted something more. I, I knew nothing about it. But uh, I I couldn't stay where I was at, and then during that time it was peacetime as well. So um, you know I just needed something to do. Makes sense, and you found it obviously. Uh, so yeah. how much did you actually know about what you were getting into? I mean, a lot of guys we we've talked to who have gone down that road do a lot of homework ahead of time, do a lot of studying so they know what they're getting into. Were you one of those types, or did you just jump into the deep end and see what happened? Yeah, no, I just jumped in. Um, you know, I mean. Obviously, you know, the, the, the phrase Green Beret and Special Forces, you know, you, you've heard a lot about it through history. There's been movies made, you know, John Wayne and Rambo. So I had those ideas in my mind of it's something, you know, I felt like it was that next step. It was that next challenge and something more. Um, so that, that's what I wanted. You know, and of course, at this time, I was still I was still under the the, you know, the, the, the original joining of, well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to finish this out and then go back to college, you know, collect my money, go back to college. So I was just looking for something while I was in to keep me going. Along those lines, a lot of guys who go down that road are going there because they know it's their first shot at combat, right? Like it's, it's the, it's the call up to the major leagues, if you will. 
Was that something that was also in your mind? Um, I mean, not really, because there wasn't a lot going on. Right. Well, that was my my next question. (laughs) Yeah. You know, in my mind, you know, I'm again, I'm sure they were doing something. I didn't know what, because like you said, it was fairly close hold. And and it still is for the most part. You know, most people see the combat aspect of it because it's all over the news. But 90 percent of what, you know, SOF and SF do is prevent war, you know, so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that's. So for me, I didn't really see it as a combat. You know, I just saw it as a challenge, hoping that I could be find something more and then, you know, have, a, have make an impact somewhere else um, other than, you know, peacetime. You know, back in the 101st, you're you're uh, armor rolling tires and, you know, spray paint and rims every every Friday, every Monday. Yeah. Make sure the and rocks are all in order at, at the company. Yeah, headquarters, right? you know, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. So stuff. that was that was the appeal for me, you know, but and it's funny because you ask that. Cause I get asked that a lot. Like, Hey, tell me about the, you know, who's the bravest person, you know, or, you know, the most courageous person, you know, and, and of course, you know, with, with my, for as long as I've been in, you know, they expect me to throw out some massive war story. And I'm like, look, man, that, that, that kid that joined after nine 11, you know, I joined for college money. These yeah. guys, you know, this generation joined knowing they were going to war, mm-hmm. you know, that they knew that when they signed up, and then you have the truck driver that's going down right, you know, route Irish, you know, like this heavily IED road. They know that there's IEDs there just to bring logistics from A to B, you know, and then they do it again and they do it again. Yep. I mean, to me, that that takes a very unique and special kind of person. That's a lot of courage there, you know, to, to drive those roads just to bring logistics. Yeah, it, there's two things there. You know, I, I tell this story all the time in the podcast. Like I was the same thing. Like I signed up. You know, I did start at ROTC in college, and it was pre-9-11, and I remember going through my, my uh, I graduated in 99, and I remember going through my senior year, and the job fairs were coming around, and my friends were like, well, are you going to the job fair? And I'm like, no. And they're like, why? I'm like, because I got to go in the Army right after graduation. And they're like, well, why don't you get a real job, right? <laughs> like, because that was the mentality back then. There was nothing going on, you know? Yeah. And, and it's funny because, it, you know, you fast forward, and I end up deployed in Iraq, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm you know, attached to this this unit where I had no business being right. Like I joke around and I say, you could have laid out all the assignments for a mid grade captain in Iraq and said, Mark, pick one. I couldn't have found a better one. I just got really, really lucky and really blessed. But I was one of those guys who probably logged about five or 6,000 miles on the streets of Iraq over the course of, you know, 12 plus months um, running around my hair on fire. And I had no business doing it. Like I saw more combat experience than 75% of the infantry at that time because they were garden gates and prisons. Like right. that was, that was their whole mission at that point in time. I mean, I would talk to infantry guys and they were like, dude, can we switch? You know? Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'll stay where I am. Thanks. I don't, I don't want your job. So for yeah. all that stuff that came with it, you know, all, all the, the danger and everything else, it was just, it was a, it was a different world. And I'm so thankful and so grateful for that experience. Cause it's still to this day, you know, uh, I'm in 21 plus years, but to this day, it's still the best experience of my career was that deployment, but hands down. I mean, I just, right. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about just in general, you know, uh, the kind of level of service, you know, that I wanted to, wanted to provide uh, to the country. And uh, it was really one of those crystallizing, uh, galvanizing moments, not for me personally, but also from a career standpoint. So right. uh, we, di- we digress. All right. So uh, you go through <laughs> assessment and selection. Uh, how hard was it for you? You know, so that goes back to that lesson I learned in college. You know, high school was pretty easy for me. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like the the football star in high school. He goes to college and now everybody on the team's a star, you know. So 
for me, high school was pretty easy. I got to college and I thought that I could just skate through like I did in high school. And it was, it was significantly more challenging. Um, you know, so I, I didn't have study skills. I didn't have the discipline to be able to do well. So when I got, you know, I served some time in the infantry and when I got to the, to the Q course, I had those skills already. I, I was mature enough to be able to handle that type of work. I knew how to develop, you know, study skills that work for me. So, you know, I, did I find it challenging? Absolutely. But, you know, I was, I did the medical course, which is very academically challenging yeah. and I did well. I did well because I had developed habits and discipline to be able to do well. So, um, I enjoyed the challenge. I loved it. And, uh, you know, and, and I found this as a, it was like an opportunity for me to academically basically redeem myself in my own mind of, I know I can do this. I was just lazy before and didn't, you know? So for somebody so I, who, who wasn't a good student, why did you choose the most study intensive, uh, <laughs> MOS within special forces? Uh, I mean, they chose it for me. Oh, honestly. did they? Okay. Yeah. So you, you take your, you take your academic tests, they test you when you're there. And, um, and then they, they base that based off of those numbers. They're just saying, okay, this guy's going to go medic. This guy's going to go, um, you know, combo and you, and you give them your choices, but I enjoyed medicine. That was kind of my goal as I was going into college is, is doing that type of work. So I thought, you know, I, I have the infantry skills. I'd been to ranger school, so I had a lot of that tactical skill already, and I wanted to kind of round myself out um, as far as skill-wise. So, you know, I, I chose – that was my first choice, and that's the one they gave me. Um, so it worked out well for me. You said you wanted a challenge. You certainly got one. Um, all right, so then then on to the Q course. You know, all said and done, this is what, a two, two-and-a-half-year process for you? Yeah, for a medic, it's about two years. Okay. So you get assigned to 10th group. Uh, what happens next? And, and oh, by the way, this is in 2000, right? So where were you on 9-11? So I was finishing the academic portion of the medical, um, the medical course. And, uh, you know, the, the, the director of the school comes in and he stops the class and he turns on, the, he, he routes the TV into our screen where we're doing our PowerPoint presentations. And he tells us a plane just flew into one of the World Trade Center towers. So we're all sitting there in class and then other classrooms that didn't have TVs trickled in and we watched the second plane hit. So we had students on the ground there, uh, the Pentagon, we had students on the ground there in New York that were helping. And, you know, we were just finishing. So I had a couple more, a couple more gates that I had to pass through before I got into the fight. But at that point, you have that flash of, okay, well, I joined for college money and I wanted a challenge. Things are going to change now. It's definitely different. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you had that sobering moment where, okay, you know, you, you kind of be careful when people say, be careful what you ask for. Um, and here it was, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a feeling of regret. It was a feeling of, like you said, it was, it was rewarding. It was, this is why I'm here. This is why I, I went through this journey to get here. Why, you know, and it almost, it is, I don't want to say it justifies, you know, not finishing college or it justifies, you know, um, you know, the timing that I had for deciding to go to special, to special forces. But in your mind, it kind of makes like, Hey, it's all brought me here to this moment. Sure. Yeah. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I, I, right. I say it repeatedly. 
the Army and the military in general have a funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be. Uh, it just it just <laughs> yeah. sort of works out that way. It's not serendipity. Um, all right, so when you get to 10th group, you know, what month year are we in and what are they telling you at that point in time? Because, you know, the Special Forces community got in the hopper very quickly. Right, so when, uh, you know, 5th group was, was, was already in Afghanistan. Yep. Um, I finished, I had to do language and seer. So by the time I get to group, we had just invaded Iraq. Okay. And um, so most of the group is gone when I show up. By the way, going through all that school, well, while you see Afghanistan kick off and Iraq kick off, are you chopping at the bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and especially knowing that you just want to get there because you know that as soon as you're done, you're on a plane. You right. know that you're going to be in the fight. And, you know, it, it, you, you, people always – a lot of times people used to complain about we have all this training and we never use it. We have all this knowledge and equipment and we never use it. So you're ready. You're like, I'm, I'm highly trained. You know, I'm the tip of the spear. You're thinking all these things coming out of the course, not realizing that <laughs> when you get to your team, the education just begins, you know. Right. So, uh, so when I showed up to group, it was – you know, they were just starting to trickle back from the um from the initial invasion of Iraq and, uh, right yep so i went to second battalion and um and just kind of linked up with my team who had just come back and then just started to learn started to integrate started to learn how things really get done and you know some initial lessons learned and then we just waited for our next turn in the meantime we did a couple other trips um mediterranean mid east type area nothing combat related or like direct combat related. And then that was just in the meantime, that was my first trip with, with SF, which it's, you know, I don't think I put it into the bio, but, um, and then, uh, 2004, you know, we knew we were, we were set up. So we started our training and we were out the door and quick, it was just back and forth. From quick there. question for you. And for those who are not familiar with how the special operations community works, or at least special forces work, you know, each group is assigned to a specific area of operations in the world. So, for example, fifth group, you know, works in the Middle East. That is their main area of operations. Tenth group, however, works a lot in Europe. And so when you guys had to find out that you were going to the Middle East and you were working in a different environment, I mean, obviously, it's not like you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. But how much did things change for you guys in preparing for that sort of thing? Um, it was pre- it was pretty different, <clears throat> you know. Me showing up, I knew nothing. I knew nothing other than you know, right. I, I'd never had any European experience. You know, nine eleven was was again during the course. So when I showed up, it was combat. And uh, but for, for some of the the legacy guys, some of the older guys, it was definitely a shift in mentality. It was a, you know. We, we think this is the equipment that we're going to need. You know, you, you have a lot of this training, but it's never actually been utilized until now. So now you're vetting techniques that, that, you know, potentially came out of Vietnam or Gulf War. You know, okay, does this work? What, is, what, what does, what doesn't? What equipment is out there now that we need for a change in mission to direct combat? So it, it was definitely a shift. And... um you know, but it was a good balance between the, the fresh, the fresh mind coming in, looking at it new, and the more experienced guys on the team of what they'd seen in other areas of operation. So it was a good balance. All right. Uh, you know, by the way, just a, a personal note. You know, the, I always said the one SF school that I wanted to go to that I would never be able to go to otherwise was Seer School 
Did you enjoy that? <laughs> not not while you're in it. No, <laughs> you, you, you get out of it thinking, you know, this was probably one of the best schools I've ever went to. Once it's over, everybody there, everybody I talked to, just that's what they said. Like I remember hearing stories of stuff that guys went through from Sears School. And for those who are civilians listening, it's survive, evade, resist, and escape. Correct. Um, that's what S-E-R-E Sears stands for. So it's basically, you know, what to do if you're ever captured kind of deal. Uh, and, and I just, just the, the, the tenor of the course sounded so interesting to me. Yeah, it's definitely a good course. And, um, you learn a lot about, you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that ranger school where, you know, like the next step from ranger school where, you know, yeah, you learn a lot of good tactics and fundamentals, but mostly you learn a lot about yourself and what your limits are and what your what you're capable of. It's funny because I, I'll never forget, and I wish I could remember his name, but if I saw his face, I could pick him out in the lineup. When I had gotten to Iraq, um, one of the sergeants um, on the ODA that was there, you know, you kind of get your pre-briefings that are sort of uh, watered down and everything else when you're stateside, and then when you get them again in Kuwait. And then when you get to the unit, they kind of give you the real lowdown of where you are and what's going on. And I'll never forget the E7, you know, when they went into the whole uh, what to do if captured part of the brief, you know, we we're going with the rules of engagement and everything else. And I'll never forget, um, you know, part of the course was what to do if captured. And he got up there and he said, all right, here's the rule about being captured. Don't. And that was the end of the brief. That was the end of the brief. And he looked and he said, I'll be damned if my wife has to see my bleeping head getting cut off on CNN. He's like, yeah. I'll let them kill me before that ever happens. So as far as being captured, don't. And then I remember hearing about Sears School after the fact. And I'm like, that's why he said that. Got it. Noted. Okay. So yeah. uh, it, it all sort of came together <clears throat> for me. Well, Sears is one of those schools also that's, that, was, that, was all, that also was catching up. You know, sure, we, yeah. we were used to the World War II, Vietnam, you know, Bosnia-type generation where they would capture you and hold you. And you know, hold you for long periods of time. Now, now, was that pleasant? No, you know, but the, the enemy we were fighting at that time, or we still are, doesn't hold people for long, you know, typically doesn't hold you for long periods of time. They use you as a leverage point. And then when, when that usefulness <clears throat> is gone, or it, you know, it, it comes down to some type of extreme act to really reach their, their your usefulness to them, then that's what they'll do. So, it was it was a hard shift for the Sear School as well, saying, "Okay, this is a completely different enemy with a completely different mindset." All right. So, when do you hit your first combat deployment? You know, in Iraq, what were you told, and what was the mission? Uh, you know, we were. Oh, what was it? Uh, I think it was something or like degrade. You know, uh, degrade the enemy's capability. You know, some kind of, you know, official sounding. Sure. But ultimately, you're, you know, you're there to, to, you know, rid the country of, at that time, they were just starting to realize it was an insurgency. Right. I was going to say um, in 04, I mean, you know, for, for the history, you know, Baghdad falls pretty quickly, right, in 03. And, you know, for the period after that, when you get to like, you know, May, June, you know, after the whole, quote, mission accomplished – from that part of 2003 into 2004, things were relatively quiet because we didn't know what we were supposed to do next, right? Like, we didn't have an idea of if we were going to leave, if we were going to stay, you know, what the plan was. And so you get there in 04, and really that's the, the beginning of the sort of insurgency. Right, right. And it was also around the time of the first free elections. Uh-huh. 
So, you know, we were on the ground for that. So that at least gave us something on the ground to say, okay, we need stability in the region that we're at to ensure that, you know, we can have the free elections go off without a, without a, a glitch. Right. And um, so, you know, that was kind of our focus at the time is, all right, hey, anybody who's who's showing, you know, who, who's we've been told at least or is showing the propensity to disrupt, then we're going to start to in- intervene in a lot of these early and and try to set the stage for those elections. As far as the actual combat portion of things, when you get there in 04, what was it like? What was the op tempo like? I mean, it was, it was still pretty high. Uh, you know, honestly, there wasn't a trip um, from from my perspective or my experiences that was that didn't have an eye, a high op tempo. You know, the that was very much what we wanted to do. We wanted to keep pressure on there uh, as much as we can constantly. And um, you know, so you know, we would we would execute a target, you know, once a week probably on on average. And, um, you know, once we got our feet underneath us and we, we, we would rotate back and forth with fifth group. And, you know, once you get your feet on you, typically fifth group or the, the outgoing unit will say, Hey, here's a couple targets that we've been working. These are executable. Now these are ready to go. And then, you know, you start building your own and you start prioritizing and going out. Okay. What's going to have the biggest effect, you know, is their timing, you know, based off this target and that target. So it was still pretty high. Um, and you know the 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 direct combat as far as like resistance wasn't necessarily there. It was more that insurgency style grenades and roadside bombs and uh, you know mortars and rockets from the distance, which is mostly what we were encountering. So as this deployment continues, I mean, you're getting your first taste of actual combat. <clears throat> what were you thinking and feeling? I mean, did it kind of live up to your expectations in your mind? It did. It did. Mostly because where, you know, we were just given a great deal of autonomy and, you know, all of us join for a sense of service. Nobody, you know, very, <laughs> I don't know anybody that's like, oh, I'm going to join this for the money. You know, it's, it's cause it's not really there. There's better ways to make a, a lucrative, to have a lucrative career. Most people that join have some type of sense of service or per- they need a purpose. And that was kind of where I was going when I joined is I needed more. I needed more, you know, my more sense of purpose. I felt like I was capable of more. And now we're in a situation where, you know, you're, you're, you're affecting the free, the free elections of a a sovereign nation, you know, and we were given that autonomy to decide which direction do we want this to go? How do we want to influence those things? And you're sitting there with a very small team and they're asking you, you know, this is your first deployment, but it's also probably their first deployment to a combat zone. The senior guys may have had other deployments under their belt, but nothing like this. So we had good conversations and everybody's opinion really mattered and usually came up with decisions as a team. And, uh, you know, n- knowing that you're having that type of influence on on history um, was, was a pretty good was a pretty good feeling. As far as, uh, you know, the, the combat operations, um, were your guys affected by any of it? I mean, you guys sustained any casualties as you went through that first round? No, uh, the team didn't. Now, we were we were assigned or attached. Our, our house was attached to another smaller fob, and they had some casualties. And, um, you know, we had to pull them out a couple times. 
Um, we, we, we had a mass casualty with our partner force uh, where the bus, they were coming back from leave and the bus was hit by uh, a VBID uh, right at the traffic circle by our house. So, I, know, um, I know that traffic circle. You're talking about it, Fob yeah. Justice? Yeah. That, that, was a, that was a complete shit show, that traffic circle. It was always chaos. Um, Getting always, in and out of that thing yeah. was, was always like scary because you were stuck there in a static yep. spot that just, you know, it was such a mess. Yep. Yep. So, you know, um, the, the medical officer that was attached to the FOB, I didn't realize this until after all this happened, was, was a pediatrician. And he was not ready for that type of mass casualty. Oh, wow. You know, so I heard it go off. Uh, I went up to the roof. I saw it. And then I saw the trucks coming in with like, you know, you just had bodies in the back of these trucks and they're bringing them into the FOB. And uh, so I grabbed my bag, I uh, grabbed, I believe it was, uh, it wasn't a PJ. We had a TAC-P with us mm-hmm. at Air Force uh, controller. I, he was up already. I'm like, come with me. And we, we got on the ATVs. We drove back to the FOB and they just started coming in probably, I think it was like 40 plus casualties. And you're just triaging. And uh, the pediatrician was a bit stressed out. Yeah, and, uh, I, I was like, "Hey, just calm down. This is what we're going to do." It was kind of neat to see that, you know, our training was very specific for this and and how it can take over. And uh, <laughs> we saved we saved a bunch of lives. The, the Air Force guy learned a ton, and then the, one of the families of the guys we saved brought me a goat later on as a thank you. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Okay, cool." We kept the goat there at the house. It was, was kind of nice. And the pediatrician so, remembered why he went into pediatrics. <laughs> Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and I, he just, he wasn't prepared. And, and when, when I talk to people about fear, you know, or stress, I'm like training, that's why we train, you know, fear is normal. Stress is normal. What we train to overcome those things. And once you start, once you take that step and you, you have that familiarity with the, you know, with the training environment, like, okay, I've, I've seen this in a training environment, things slow down and it takes over. And, you know, the fear and stress sub- starts to subside and you focus. Yeah, I mean, I was, that was literally what I was going to ask you next because you, you go through such rigorous training, right? And, and uh, you know, again, you, you guys uh, through, you know, uh, your, your Q course as a medic, as an SF medic, you know, you, you, you got a euthanized animal you're trying to keep alive for 18 hours and you're authorized to perform surgery. But when, when it actually is for real, for you, it was just training kicking in. There was no pausing, no thinking, anything like that? No. No, it That's was, awesome. you know, that was our first big casualty. We've had some, we had some smaller you know, casualties here and there. Some, some of them were just recovery operations. Um, and you know, you, you, you're, you're not only dealing with, <clears throat> so the recovery operation specifically, it was, you know, there, it was really dusty and they had those, you know, those huge canals that they used to have there that would run water from, you know, up in Samara and all that. They, they had a, a dam down there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the infantry unit was on a patrol and uh, they came up to the to the canal. The, the lead vehicle turned. The, the, the two vehicles behind him got caught in the dust and drove into the canal. <clears throat> so we had to go there and help them with recovery. <clears throat> so we had to, you know, and they were God, they were on the ground probably two weeks, three weeks. I mean, they had just gotten there <clears throat> and we were toward the end of ours. And they were just kind of like, they didn't know what to do. We're like, look, you've been trained, set up a perimeter. You know, we need security. You know, 
what do we see right now? What's going on? Which way is the current going? How can we how can we conduct a rescue operation with what we have? <clears throat> so, you know, and then you had the command leadership that was there and uh, they were pretty broken up. You know, these were their guys. They were responsible for them. And, you know, that's where you're trying to focus them of like, hey, I got it. This is tragic. But right now your guys need you to take charge of this security. Take, you know, let us manage this for now trying to give them purpose and help them focus because they were, they were just silent and stoic and just standing there and their, and their guys needed them. So, um, yeah, it was definitely some, you know, you, you learn a lot about other people. You learn a lot, a ton about yourself. I mean, I learned my trips a lot about myself and, uh, you know, but you're, you also start to see the difference between, you know, the training that we've, that we've received Versus sometimes trainings that other that others have received. Right. Uh, your next two deployments um, in 06 and 07 are both back to Iraq. Now, uh, I speak about these specifically just because the intensity and the violence had picked up so much to that point. Uh, as you know, you know, I talked about. I was there uh, for the first half of 06, and you know, this is what precipitated the surge coming in 07 because the violence was at unmanageable points. So, how much different was or were those two deployments uh, from your first one? Well, you know, the biggest difference is, like you said, uh, what, what was the goal? You know, so when we were there the first time, it was stability operations, mm-hmm. prepping for, you know, prepping for um, for elections. And then the next two trips were very offensive. Um, there was a lot of uprising that, you know, the, the insurgency had grown really big and, and gotten very violent. And there was other countries at play. You know, so we knew all of, we were tracking all of this too. So now it became this, this huge chess game of how are we going to counter not just the insurgency on the ground, but the countries that are supporting them, you know, from abroad. And how do we make these links and all these ties to let, you know, the, you know, State Department and, 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 you know, the Pentagon make more strategic decisions and give them the information that they need. And to get that information, it was, it was heavy combat operations going out and getting it you know so um definitely there was definitely an uptick in the op tempo um you know i would say it doubled for those last two trips and then you know like like you mentioned earlier we were also at that point paired with the isof who you know was a was a really high trained highly trained unit as far as iraqis go and uh you could accomplish a lot more so um yeah, those two trips were definitely, especially the last one. Um, Baghdad was pretty, pretty busy, but Basra, at that height of the surge, you know, was was a, it was a powder keg when we first got in there. It was, it was seemed everything seemed like it was calm, and then it just erupted, and we knew it was coming. Do you think all your training prepared you for the offensive portion of things from the standpoint of, you know? Staring down, you know, your rifle and your scope and putting a round on target is one thing in training. It's completely different when there's another person on the other end of that. So for you, what was that experience like? Um, you know, personally, I didn't, I didn't have any hesitations or issues. Um, you can definitely feel your adrenaline. And, you know, you, you, for a long time, this actually bothered me. Like it bothered me that it didn't bother me, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to hear, I'm starting to hear a lot more guys say this, you know, like 
you know, people talk about, you know, all the, the, the problems that they bring home and the, and the baggage and the, you know, the, I call it residue, the residue that we bring home. And for me, it was the challenging part was the fact that it didn't bother me and that it's not that I enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm, you, you look at that sociopath scale, you know, where you have the criminal sociopath and then you have someone at the opposite end of the, the spectrum that won't be able to do the things that we're asked to do. So I, I think I think we do a really good job of selecting those individuals early and saying we need someone with this type of balance that when put in these situations won't hesitate and will do the things that we need to do. And then now the next step is how do you pick up the pieces? How do you clear away the residue, you know, without without breaking the system? Right. You know, and, and I, uh, that's something personally that, that I always, uh, it's not struggled with, but yeah, somebody who's sort of contemplative and introspective like me, um, you know, uh, I always, uh, I remember the first time that experience, you know, I went through it and there was a, what didn't feel like anything more than half a second, but there was a half a second sort of moment where in my head before I pulled the trigger I realized this time it's different right because I I, you know I've done it on a range for my entire career and everything else but you know and and then thinking about it afterwards I realized I'll never be the same person again I'll I'll, I I mean I I remember that moment like it was yesterday and I could still see the silhouette that I was uh, of the person that I was staring at but you, you just realize that you're never the same and and the person I was before is literally dead and that I'll never be that person again because I, I, that moment sort of changes you whether you'd like to acknowledge it or not. And as you talked about, how long it takes people to work through that residue sometimes has different effects on everybody. No, absolutely. And it, and it, and again, it depends on the person and you know this, you know, just as well as a whole is going to change you. Every mm-hmm. aspect of it in a different way is going to change you. You know, I'm a different person. I don't feel like I've gotten away from the core person that I was. Right. I think it's just shift. It's just shifted. And, you know, for me, and, and, I, and I joke around sometimes about, you know, well, you know, what, what about the positive benefits of combat? And, you know, and people are like, what are you talking about? You know, for me, I had a routine and I don't know if you did, but um, I had a routine that was important to me. So, you know, we have a mission to go out, assuming it wasn't time sensitive. I would lay out my equipment. I'd go through my weapon, make sure it's clean, make sure it's oiled, make sure all the parts look like they're working well. I'd unload and reload my ammo. I'd set up my kit. I'd check my uniform, you know, and then once I got all that, I'd go out. We check the radios. You know, if I'm the gunner, I'm checking the gun. You had a routine. And then probably an hour or so before you rolled out the gate, I would sit on the, on the roof of the gun truck. You know, feet on the hood. I had an iPod or whatever crappy little <laughs> music thing mm-hmm. that they had back then at the top from the Haji Marts. And uh, I would make a list. It's like, okay, if I don't come back, what would I do different in my life? How would I change? How would I, is the man I think I am matching my actions? And I would do this every time. And I had a list. I would, you know, learn to play an instrument. I would, you know, uh, travel more, spend more time with family. And I had a list that was just constantly evolving every time I went out the door. And then when I'd come home, I'd start checking off that list. Okay. 
I'm, I'm going to travel. I've never, you know, I had friends that were form, weren't from the United States that had seen more things in the States than I had. And I'd lived here my whole life. So, you know, I started doing that. I started prioritizing family at that time I was single. So, you know, spent time with my dad and spent time with family members and show them the importance of that for me. And I just kept going down that list and I felt like it was helping me clear away the residue and become a better person at the same time. And then you go back, you do it again and you come back and you start checking off the list. Now there were some, you know, some other stuff in there too, you know, with that high op tempo where you're going back and forth so much, you're going to see those, those effects you know, you, you can't just bring guys out of a combat zone like that and then throw them into downtown. You know, like, it just right. doesn't work. You're going to start to see the problems, you know, whereas, like, you know, World War II, they're coming back on a ship. You know, they got months, a month at least, with like-minded individuals coming back from, you know, a, a war zone, and they can talk it through, and they're starting to decompress and talk with like-minded individuals who have seen similar, similar type stuff. Um, you know, our, our generation didn't have that, right? You're getting yeah. off the plane and you're doing soccer the next day, you know? And, uh, I think that's part of some of the struggles and challenges that guys have. And I say guys general, you know, guys and girls, um, that, you know, coming back is that, that abruptness of it. And especially in our, in our world where they're like, well, you know, you've been selected and trained and you're, 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 you should be some of the most resilient people that the country has to offer. Well, we are, but you know, I, I have, you know, I live in Colorado. I have huge, you know, granite stones in my yard, you know, and as those fill with water and the winter comes, it starts to crack. And then the next year it cracks more and more. Eventually that stone is going to fracture. If you don't repair it, you don't do something with it. You don't fix it, wipe it away and maintain, you know, and, and that's the way I see our, us as, as a whole is, you know, we're, I think time magazine said, you know, they had an art, they had a cover a long time ago with the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. Well, you know, we, we are, we're impressive. The American military as a whole, especially modern day, but you don't take care of it. You're going to start to see those fractures and we are seeing it. I'm sure you hear about it all the time. Yeah. And, and, uh... The, the the challenge is is that uh, you you look at a force now that you know over fifty percent of the active force has yet to be deployed. Like th- there was a there was a rush there where if you weren't wearing a combat patch, you know you were looked at sideways. Not because you were a coward or anything. Just like how did you not have this happen yet? Because it's happened to all of us, if not at least once, multiple times. And now you're looking at a force that has turned over so much in a relatively short amount of time. That, you know, the lack of combat experience now is starting to become more of an issue for the service than than uh, it, it ever was in the last 20 years. And the reason why there's been so much turnover is because guys are just basically realizing that they, they've, they've hit their, their limit, you know, and, and oh, yeah. th- their brain is not in a good spot. Their mind is not in a good spot to be able to do their jobs. And thankfully, you know, we are in a, in a place where, at least in the military, we're starting. And I just say we're starting because I do not want to make it seem like to anybody listening that the military still doesn't have a mental health stigma because we do, right? The minute you go see the psych, you know, it's probably end, meaning the end of your career. And there's a lot of guys, right. you know, there's a lot of guys, me included, who aren't willing to run the risk 
Um, now I'll do it on my own personal time. I'll go to a, a, a private, right. you know, private civilian doctor, but I would never right. go to a military doctor and say, and a lot of the people who, you know, have the military insurance who are on active duty and using that, well, they know if they go use that insurance, it's going to get back. Right. Or, you know, they, they, right. they're just, they're, so we're not at the point yet that like, I, I think generally in society, we're starting to talk about mental health more and, and allowing it to be a free flowing conversation without stigma. But the military still has, uh, I, I think, more hurdles to clear when it comes to that, that it shouldn't be the end of your career or it shouldn't be the, well, we don't know if this person can really do the job to the level that we need them to at this point in time. And some of that, you know, Gary, it's more internally challenged than externally, right? Because think about guys on your team, right? There's a guy on your team who's going to go, listen, I don't have a problem going to talk to somebody, but when the bullets are flying, I don't know where their head is, and that's a concern for me. Do I have exactly. to change the way I'm going to fight because I don't know if this person is going to do the job that they're trained to do because mentally they're not in a good spot? We put more stigma on it internally, I think, than externally. Absolutely. You know, so we – and this, this is something we talk about a lot. And, and, you know, you look at the DOD or the Army, you know, like as that, you know, people use the analogy that the big moving ship. Like it takes a while for that change to happen. Whereas in soft, it can happen quicker. You know, so what we're looking at doing for us, we realize it's a culture issue, you know, exactly like you're saying, you know, like, let's go back to the original with a, with a pediatrician. I was talking with him one day and he's like, I'll have a line around the door of people who are pretending to be injured so they don't have to deploy. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm seeing guys limp through the team room and asking them, hey, are you all right? No, I'm good, because they're worried that they're not going to deploy. So now you throw mental health on top of that, and that's just another, that's just another injury. I'm going to hide this because I don't want to seem like I'm weak. I don't want to not deploy, and you know, I don't want the ramifications of whether it's, you know, hey, I, I'm being labeled as a mental health issue and my gun rights get taken away or something like that. Right. All of these things start to pile on. <clears throat> so we realize that it's, it's a culture thing. And, okay, how do we change that culture? How do we shift that so that the younger guys come in, see mental, you know, we, we call it, you know, performance. We, we, we also change how we market it. But, we, you know, how you, change, how you see that, it's just like they're going to the gym. You know, so when I talk to younger guys, I'm like, look, here's a couple analogies for you. In my world, hey, Team Sergeant, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm going to stop by the dock and clear my head a little bit and I'm going to go to lunch and I'll be back. Like, it's just normal. Like you're going to the gym because you, you hit it spot on. It comes down to performance. You know, our minds are, are, are the greatest weapon we have. And if we don't take care of it, it's going to fail. So the other analogy I use as a weapon, you know, I talked about my routine. I disassemble, I would disassemble my, my uh, M4. I would clean it, wipe off when we all do this. Wipe off all the carbon, you know, especially if you just had some type of a firefight. Yep. When you get back to your, your fob or your team house or whatever it may be, weapons maintenance. Okay. What happens if there's a part that's not working right? Either we replace it or we deadline the weapon. But we don't do that with our people. Guys are not disassembling, going in to see a doc and saying, hey, I need some weapons maintenance. You know, basically, I need just to talk to someone, clear it out, do a functions check. Because when you need it the most, it's going to fail you if you don't take care of it. And, and that's what we're preaching, guys, now, that it's a performance thing. Hey, if you don't get it taken care of, then you're not going to deploy. Go see the doc. 
okay, you're limping. If you don't take it, get it taken care of now while we're here so that you can deploy and that you're at peak performance. You're operating at a high level. That's what we need. And, and when you, when, when we frame it that way for guys about it's a performance thing, it's not a mental health thing. It's a performance. You know, you, you want to be at peak performance by clearing away that residue and have your mind clear. Not just that, but start developing that, that life, that life balance. You know, there's other aspects in your life that are weighing on you as well. And there's only, much, there's only so much capacity that you're going to be able to handle. So learning to manage those. And if you're trying to manage all of these pieces, money problems, family problems, you know, work issues, and you're doing that with a compromised system, meaning your, your brain's not operating properly, that's, just a, that's a recipe for failure. And that's where guys are struggling. Very well said. I mean, it's, you know, you know, sort of encapsulates a lot of it. All right. Uh, so for you, uh, after Iraq in 07, you start to take on a kind of completely different deployment mission around the world, both to Europe and Africa. Um, I know some of that stuff is, you know, uh, agency stuff that you can't necessarily get into, but kind of can you gloss over a little bit what the function and the mission was? Well, so, you know, after the surge um, and, you know, and, this, and the, the success of the surge, and, you know, bringing in, you know, the community watch or whatever, you know, whatever they were calling it in their regions of, you know, making tribes more responsible for their own security and working with us, things really started to calm down in Iraq. Um, so what happened was, you know, now we say, OK, hey, things are slowing down here. You know, at that time, Afghanistan wasn't wasn't what it is, you know, in the past few years which is why the fight was in Iraq at the time, because everyone came there for it. And now it was shifting. So we, they, they realigned us. They were like, hey, we, let's realign. And, you know, we'll pull 10th group off of Iraq. We'll let 5th group have that back. We moved, They shifted 3rd group to Afghanistan, which left Africa open. So they shifted us to Africa. So now you have, you know, a unit that, you know, was supposed to specialize in a European theater that's been operating for five, six years in the CENTCOM theater, now having to learn the African theater. So, you know, the mission was, was the same. Um, it was still the, the global war. Um, we still had the same goals. It just wasn't as in your face and as direct. When you talk about it not being as direct, does that mean that there was less danger? Is that fair to say or no? <clears throat> um. I would say that, you know, the, the fear of direct action was, was def the risk of direct action was definitely a little lower, but you're also now dealing with really small teams. I mean, you know, we, we operate in at the most 12 men and typically you don't have that, um, you know, but a lot of these missions were, you know, not a full team. So now you're looking at six guys, you know, in a country that's, that's in, that's in the middle of a struggle of some kind with <clears throat> no fob no gate guards, no, um, you know, air support. I mean, you're, you're just there by yourself. So that, that kind of shifted the scale a little bit where the level of stress I felt was almost higher because you just felt so exposed out there, you know? And, uh, it, it was, it was a different, it was, it was definitely a different dynamic, but, uh, it was challenging for sure. How do you quantify <laughs> success in that manner? I mean, like, because sometimes things are so clandestine. It's like, okay, so you, direct action, 
you can measure success pretty easily on any given raid or assault, right? I mean, it, it's kind of there in front of you for you to see. And I'm not even talking about whether you sustain casualties or not, but, the, you know, the, the mission is pretty clear. And I'm not saying your mission and these other things weren't clear, but the second and third order of effects of those results may, may not have been felt for a while, right? So how do you kind of measure that? So, you know, that, that really came down to senior guys educating the, the younger guys. And, and, and then having, having a broad understanding of how, how campaign pan, plans are built, you know? So what we would do is we started sitting down with our young guys and saying, okay, Hey, look, here's, I mean, from national security strategy, here's what the president's guidance is for security. And then we would trickle it down. You know, this is, you know, in order for this area to be stable for economic growth to stop you know, stop the recruiting from, you know, I, you know, um, ISIS or uh, Al Qaeda, you know, they, they're, they're going to those areas that are right for recruits. Well, if we raise the economic demographic there then they're less likely to want to do this, but we need security first. So that's where we step in. So they really had to understand on a huge scale strategically, why are they on the ground? You know, they needed to know the why once they understood the why they understood what their piece is, in the bigger strategy and the bigger game, then it was easier for them to say, okay, I understand the end state and they're leaving it up to me to decide how to get there, which was again, for me, the best part of it is they're not telling you how to get there. Hey, we need stability in this region, go on the ground and conduct special operations was, was literally the mission. And they leave it up to you to make an assessment and decide, okay, what's the best way? Where are the pressure points? What needs to be added and what needs to be removed for this area to, to be stable so that we can start moving toward other bigger objectives. Now, you start to be a pretty senior guy as far as rank when you're doing this stuff. Um, did that limit the amount of actual work you had to do as far as your position that you held? No. I don't, um, let, let me rephrase that. I want to say work that you had to do. I meant the actual, you know, conducting of missions per se. Um. Not really. No. The, you know, again, because we operate on such small teams, everybody has a role. Right. And, and we depend heavily on everyone. You know, what does what does Belichick say? You know, just do your job. Everybody needs to do their job. And, you know, we, we've become really good at, you know, giving up the eye for the we, and, and we understand that we, I think we as veterans and, and military active duty military truly understand what teamwork means. No, a hundred percent. I mean, that, that is a, it's something that we preach at the lowest levels and, it, and it's followed all the way through. So, uh, never, never short on, on that teamwork aspect. All right. Uh, again, I, I know we're glossing over some of this stuff here, which, uh, do just due to kind of the nature of what's going on. But, um, I do want to kind of get to, uh, 2016 when you founded the special forces foundation um, now, this is an organization that is, you know, supposed to provide focused and relevant assistance to members of the Special Forces Regiment, Green Berets, and their families. So what was the impetus for starting it, um, and kind of how has it grown over the last four years? So, and, and again, you know, you hear, you hear these stories all the time. We, we're, and even the SOCOM commander was talking about the fraying of the force. You know, we, we were we were pushing so hard, we were expecting so much of our SF operators 
the guys that were meant to, you know, guys that wanted to stay for 20 or more years were burning out at 10, burning out at 12. And when I say burning out, we were seeing issues with behavior. We were seeing issues with substance abuse, alcohol, mental, you know, families, the, the family structure falling apart. So was this, you know, no, real at, quick, was this just due to the cycle of, you know, five to seven months on deployment, three months back, <clears throat> five to seven months on deployment, you know, two months back, you know, go to school, whatever it may be, come back, hop on the, you know, the last three months of another deployment, come home three months rest back on a full deployment like that. You're saying all that is the, the contributing factor. Right. Okay. Right. And then, you know, and we can talk about the residue, you know, at no point do you have an opportunity or develop techniques or skills to be able to clear that away. You're just carrying it with you. You do one trip, you come back, you take leave, you know, you're fresh off of the deployment and you're probably still carrying a lot of that with you. Then you go back into training and you're back in the mindset and you're just carrying it all forward and it starts to build up. And, you know, there, there was a time when, you know, oh, I was a, Oh, if you haven't been divorced three times and you're not really an operator and, you know, and those days are gone. Like, you know, the modern warrior needs that, needs that tribe. They, they need that family support. They need that, the support of the tribe, men, you know, men and women that we work with. And it's important for the mental well-being and the health of all of us for us to be able to, to level that out, to watch out for each other. You know, we, we see the signs. Usually a spouse will see it first. But, you know, and, and, I, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, like, we've all seen that guy that comes in on Monday and just has these outrageous stories of, oh, I woke up on a bus and I don't know how I got there. And, you know, we just laugh like, oh, that guy's a partier and got it. Those are signs that there's probably something going on. And we just ignore it. We, we see it as just, you know, guys being guys, soldiers being soldiers, whatever it is. And we, and we kind of dust it off. So... You know, I was working at a, at a at a high at a special operations command at the time, and I was responsible as the first sergeant for that type of well-being. So, you know, when you get to those high levels, now you're seeing guys that have multiple deployments. A lot of them were probably injured, so now they need a staff position to be able to continue career. They're still value added; they just probably can't run as fast, or you know, they have some chronic pain. So I started developing programs and I was just looking for, you know, I'm like, Hey, there has to be a way where we can, you know, benevolent organizations can help. And, you know, the legal process is through the, the care coalition. And that's what we did. Care coalition is a SOCOM program that allows through them benevolent organizations to help out active duty members. So we just weren't, we weren't getting a lot of the support. It seemed like there was a lot of, um, you know, you look at like the wounded warrior type, there was a lot of organizations struggling, a lot of organizations that were just not relevant anymore, that were run by people who didn't really understand the current warfighter. And um, so I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I, I want to I start my own. You know, I want to do something, even if it's on a small scale, that where I can help out a family here, we can do retreats and 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 build programs that really matter to guys and make a difference and not just throwing money at a problem. And, and then we wanted an organization that was, that understood our culture and that did it for the true reason of benevolence. So, you know, in our bylaws, we talked about 
key positions will never be paid positions. It needs to be a voluntary position, active duty or retired Green Beret. <clears throat> there are certain rules that we have to abide by if, if, if they're active duty, which is fine. We work around those. We work around those well within the, the, the rules of what the DOD lays out. You know, but at the end of the day, we're just trying to help guys. We're trying to help families stay together, you know, because that has that ripple effect throughout the, the entire regiment. As you started to grow this thing, uh, did anything change with it? I mean, did, you know, and, and how or where do you want it to go in the coming years? So it did change. Um, it grew really fast, a lot faster than we expected. Um, we, you know, our, our initial goal was, hey, we can do a little bit here, maybe, you know, fund a barbecue, help a family that has an AC that went out or, you know, pay for lawn service for a wounded guy, all of the things that we've done. And it started to, to resonate. It started to catch on with, with Green Berets. Like, we like this. We like that it's run by us and it's specifically for us and that, that the money, we know the money is going back to us. It's not funding a lifestyle. Right. It's not funding a huge, you know, compensation package. You know, if you look at our taxes, compensation says zero. None of us get paid. And, and we started making, you know, getting huge donations. We were running events involving Green Berets and the events. They were loving it. We started voluntary programs. An example is um, we're finishing up a project at one of our Gold Star homes. You know, their, her husband passed last year and the, the house is, is, is needing repairs. So, okay. Hey, we'll come in and <clears throat> we'll provide material, but it needs to be Green Berets on the ground doing the work. One, you're showing this family that they're still part of this family. And two, you're giving Green Berets an opportunity to help, which is healing for them as well. So, you know, we, we started coming up with some really innovative programs. We just announced a scholarship for spouses because that's that's a critical part of, 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 of an operator's life. If, if they don't realize that and we try to stress it, like if you don't realize that, then you're not going to be your full potential. So, you know, we, we're, we're building programs like this and they're programs to us that, that actually matter and that we know they're going to make a difference. It's not like, hey, we're going to do a, you know, we're going to do a retreat in Vail. Who wants to go? And then, you know, I've seen couples that are on the outs go on, on, on retreats just because they want to go to Vail. And they're like, okay, well, that did nothing for the family. It did nothing to help them heal or bring them back together or help them resolve any problems. You're just throwing money at it. And then you're spending a ton of money for like 10 families. You know, we'd rather have a more meaningful event and cover a hundred families. So we just started coming up with more creative ways. We were asking the guys directly, Hey, what kind of event would you attend? What would help you more? Where, where do you, where do you see the gaps? And, you know, because we're, we're still in or some of us recently retired we still have those touch points within the regiment where we can get that feedback. And then we built in bylaws. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm already on my way to retirement. I have two years that I can serve in this position post-retirement. And then I need to hand it off to another guy that's more, in my mind, more relevant. That way we maintain relevancy of what we're doing in our programs and where that money is going. That makes sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. How can people donate and help out if they want? So... Uh, we have a website, um, specialforcesfoundation.org. We're in the process of building a new one right now. 
um, because that one is just it, it served its purpose for our initial growth, but now we're we're getting big enough that we need we needed something more uh, to give out more information about events and programs that we're running. Or you can text SFF to nine one nine nine nine, and uh, you know if if somebody wants to earmark money specific to a gold star or specific to I want this to go to wounded, um, you know we can do that. We're we're not. We're just here to help. We just want to stop, you know, the, the the fracturing that we're seeing within within guys that that have that have given a lot, and and we also specifically see it. And this is a new program as well in transition. Um, you know, we 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 build a sense of identity as veterans and and as Green Berets that this is who we are. And then when you take that uniform away and you take that family, so to speak, away, guys have some 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 issues and mm-hmm. they, they have some real problems adjusting to civilian life. And, you know, the we is not as important sometimes, depending on the company. It's more about I and right. they're, they're, they have some they have some struggles. So we, we've developed a really good transition program and we we're making sure we're leveraging all of the programs that are already available within SOF and within the army and within the DOD and say, look, we, we don't have to do this ourselves. There's programs that are here. We just need to tweak how we do them a little bit so that they work better for, for our, for our people. You've worn a uniform for 27 years. Any thoughts on when you're going to enter that transition program? (laughs) So I'm in it now. Um, I, I, I will be retiring within the year. And, um, which, which allows me to, to do, to do stuff just like this, right? you know, um, and start to start to reach out more and tell our stories. And, you know, I, I, I know, I mean, I, I have a feeling you and I could sit here for hours and just talk back and forth oh, about sure. experiences. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, so, um, for me, I've been helping guys for so long with that transition that it's helped me get into the right mindset to be ready for it. How did you know um, you were done? Um, you know, it was, it was COVID, honestly. Really? Um, you know, COVID hit and we all started having to work from home for a while there when the DOD shut down and I was home every day, um, with my kids. I got two boys, six and four and my wife, and I really enjoyed it. I, I, I liked being home with them all. I liked being around them all. You know, I'd have to sneak away and go and do my meetings and do my normal work stuff. But, you know, I could be on a, on a call for work and, you know, my boys bring me a picture that they're drawing or they drew for me. And I just really enjoyed it. And I want, I want now <clears throat> to two things, you know, spend more time with my family. And the second one is, you know, make room for those, those, those young guys that are proving themselves and are ready for these positions. I don't want to be that guy that's clinging on. Like I I don't have anywhere else to go or nothing else to do. And they're just holding on. And there's young guys that are ready to be there and take over because we've trained them well. I I think that's the most mature leadership attitude anybody at our level of an organization can have. I mean, I said the same thing to, you know, to my superiors um, within, you know, the Georgia Guard here. I I said, listen, as soon as I'm done having relevance, as soon as I'm done, providing a specific purpose to the organization, just tell me to go. I'll leave on my own. Like, you don't, I mean, if that's the case, just tell me and I'll leave on my own. You don't have to try to force me out the door. 
Someone looks at me in the eye and I say, listen, you're done here. You've done everything you can do. It's time to... I know that there are good people underneath me. I know that there Absolutely. are people who have room to grow. And uh, I'd be doing a disservice to the organization if I stay any longer than absolutely necessary for my own personal reasons. And it kind of violates everything that we were ever taught and everything that we ever try to teach anybody yep. who is junior to us. Yeah, that about putting our own absolutely. needs in front of everybody else's. So uh, I, I commend you for having that sort of that, that mentality and that attitude and realizing that, you know, we've done a great job at training the next generation of this force. Uh, and, and it's yep. time to give them a chance to shine. So a couple of things, you, you know, you bring up a really good point. <clears throat> I had a conversation with a, a Green Beret who got out and he had a really bad transition. Um, you know, we, we helped him get sober. Um, you know, <clears throat> luckily he held his family together, but he had a really rough go. And I had breakfast with him the other day and he's like, he's like, you know, I would, you know, he was like a, a very a cephalic, like DA, direct action type, door kicking guy. That was his thing. And he was really good at it. He was known, he was known for it. So he was teaching it. So when he got out, he would call back to the unit, to the, to the training detachment and say, hey, I know you guys got a range coming up and you're training a unit. You always forget to do X, Y, and Z. And they're like, nope, we got it. Took care of it. Yeah, but what about this? You guys always miss this part and make sure you're doing this. He's like, yep, we did this. This is where we're at. It's all done. And he's like, I hung up and realized that they didn't need me, that I wasn't needed anymore. And he's like, and it threw me into a really deep depression and what we call dark times. Um, you know, that, 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 that I, I, I've lost my purpose. Yeah. And, and I started laughing and he's like, why are you laughing? I'm like, because it's, it's a simple pers- perspective. You, the story you just told me, the way I see it, is you did your job. You trained the next generation to do good work and protect the nation and do the things that the nation has asked them to do while keeping them alive. You did your job. And instead of being proud and going fishing, you're taking it personal that they don't need you anymore. And he just sat there for a while and kind of thought about it. <clears throat> and I'm like, look, man. We, we're, we're, we're spoiled in the military. <clears throat> our job and our purpose are the same thing. You're not going to find that. It's going to be really rare for you to find that anywhere else. So what you need to do is find a job that you like, that, that meets your, your financial needs of your family, and then find your purpose somewhere else. The, those, the, when you get out, those things may not be the same. You may find purpose somewhere else. <clears throat> for him... I'm like, it, it's who you are as a person that made you a good Green Beret. It's not the, the color of your hat or the tab on your shoulder that made you a great soldier. It's who you are. Those things are still there. We right. don't lose those things when we step out of uniform. And people don't understand or think that they don't have any value when they get out. They're like, there are companies that would, that would bend over backwards to hire someone competent like, like a veteran who shows up on time who understands leadership, who can follow, who's a creative and critical thinker, who, you know, sometimes brings their own healthcare. I mean, just simple things like that is who we are. No matter what your specialty was in the military, you bring a lot of value to the outside world <clears throat> and you can continue to cr- contribute to your, to your communities and your country, maybe just not in uniform anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, you talk about that purpose thing. I always call it the void. And the void is a very dangerous place. And, you know, I, I say, imagine, you know, walking into a room, a dark room with a door. There are no light switches, 
but you're trying to find one. That's the void. You're going to drive yourself crazy in that spot trying to find a purpose where there is none. <laughs> yep. When your military yeah. career is over, your purpose doesn't stop. Your purpose in the military <clears throat> stops. And so often, right. because a lot of these guys do it for so long, they don't know how to have a purpose in another area. And like you said, you yeah. conflate your purpose with the military's purpose, and those are two different things. And so, right. you know, the, the last thing you want to do is, is go looking for a light switch in a room that doesn't have one because all you can do is bump into walls in the dark and you drive yourself crazy. So, <laughs> yep. you know, yep. it's, it's it, that, that purpose that we all strive to have. And, and again, I, you know, I, 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 said, I said this exact thing in my, my battalion change of command speech. I told everybody, I said, listen, you're all going to be told to take this uniform off, right? At some yep. point in time, you're going to be told you don't have to wear this anymore. For some people, it's after four years. For some people, it's after 10 years. For some people, it's after 24 right. years. But you're going to be told you have to take this thing off. Understand what that means and understand how you're going to be different. Um, the same way the first time you put it on, you became different, I think is really, really critical. You know, And, and I, look, for me, I don't know a life. I don't know an adult life without the military in it. Like, I, I, you know, right. it, it's a little unnerving. I admit it freely. I'm kind of scared Like when I'm not going to have to put the <laughs> uniform on anymore because I, I don't know what it's like to be a, a grown adult without it. It's just always been right. a part of me. And so I, yeah. I'll enter into that void at some point, and I'll have to navigate through right. it. Right. But, you know, you, I feel like, are going to be a lot like me, where we still have – you have this podcast. You know, I have the foundation. We still have purpose. Sure. And, and, and that purpose keeps me tied to Green Berets, keeps me tied to the tribe, keeps me helping, you know. And so for me, when I look at transition, I'm like, I can still – make a difference with these guys' lives. You know, I've, 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 we've trained them. They're going to go and do great things. Am I going to miss deployments? Sure. Am I going to miss being in the know? Sure. You know, but I can still help in another way the fight, so to speak. And you know, the other part and, uh, is, is that we, we forget there was a time in our lives when we didn't have those things, right? Like there was a time where you weren't a Green Beret. There was a time where you weren't in the know. There was a time existed all those things and you never missed them because you didn't have them. And, and you have to just kind of remember that, that that part of your life existed before in order to sort of remember what to do when it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Well, it's, it's given up the eye for the we. They need to start seeing who they are now and understand that, it, it, you know, they may have changed as a person, but more than, you know, more than likely, it's for the better. Right. They've become, they, they may not see it, but it's for the better. And, and there's a lot of well-meaning civilians out there. There's a lot of well-meaning, you know, that, that want to help that soldier, you know, it's become the catchphrase of, you know, help the troops, support the troops. But ultimately the troops need to support the troops. We need to support ourselves. We right. need to take care of our own. Well, I've said that for years. Just, Nobody takes care of us better than we do. No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, guys like you and this platform to, to let guys know and help them find, okay, where, where is that value? Where am I now that I'm no longer, you know, uh, in, in uniform? Hey, you didn't change. Those, 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 those fundamentals of who you are are still there. They may have shifted a little bit based off of life experience and combat, but they're still there. And there's, there's a lot of value in that. <clears throat> you know, what, what I tell guys when they're transitioning, I try to, I, I open up with exactly what you said. One, this is going to end. At some point, you're going to walk out of this uniform. It's, it's, it's going to end. It's, it's, it's inevitable Two, you got to have a plan. So you, you say the light switch in the room, like they're just feeling around in the dark. I dump a puzzle on the ground, on the, on the table. 
thousand piece puzzle. And I'm like, all right, we're going to start with putting this puzzle together. And then the, usually the first thing they ask for is, okay, well, where's the lid? Well, no, you don't get the lid. No, I expect you to just take this thousand pieces with no plan of no idea of where you're going and figure it out. Right. Like that, that frustration is, is what I feel like a lot of people see right now. And like, you gotta talk to somebody who, who will mentor, who mentors you, somebody you trust and find that direction, find that purpose and, 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 you know, and focus on it and work toward it every day. We're, we're good at that. You know, that that's what we've been trained to do. So you utilize those skills to continue to better your life. Well, Sergeant Major, again, uh, you know, I commend you on a very long, uh, prosperous, and certainly, you know, uh, impactful career. And uh, despite the fact that it is coming to an end, there's another chapter that you're going to start to write here uh, in a short amount of time that may be equally as important to what you just did for the last nearly 30 years. So for that, I certainly thank you and wish you nothing but luck on your on your next endeavor. But it's been an amazing chatting with you. I mean, really, it's a, I think we covered a lot of great ground, and, and certainly um, there's a lot of important messages that, that people need to hear. And I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording. You know, you said that you don't know if you had a great story to tell, but you do. I mean, and it's an important one. And somebody's going to hear these topics about transition, and someone's going to hear about how to handle this whole thing, uh, and they're, they're going to be impacted by it uh, in ways that you didn't know that you had the ability to do. So, again... You know, certainly thank you for all your on, your honesty and candor, and certainly thank you for uh, being able to share, you know, your story in particular. Well, I appreciate the uh, opportunity, and, uh, you know, I, I love what you're doing here. And if there's anything you ever need from me or somebody reaches out and needs something, I'm always here. Um, we, we, like you said, we need to support each other, so that's, that's, that's what my mission is now. And, again, it's specialforcesfoundation.org if you guys would like to help out the Special Forces Foundation. But Sergeant Major Gary Garza, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.